This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. So this was 40 years later, and I still remembered this. Had not talked about it, literally ever, (laughs) don't think, until that day. And, um, and I think about what it means that a 10-year-old Black child knows something about the justice system in America that apparently many extremely accomplished adult white people purport not to know. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there. Before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. My guest is Sherilyn Eiffel, a civil rights attorney who walks into the courtroom with history behind her. Her official title is President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Think of it as the legal arm of the civil rights movement, and Sherilyn is in its vanguard. It's the job that once belonged to none other than Thurgood Marshall before he went on to the Supreme Court. Now, his hometown is Baltimore, where Sherilyn lives now. But her hometown is New York City, specifically a neighborhood in Queens called Jamaica. And that's what I want to talk to her about, because I notice that in her travels, Sherilyn says that whenever she gets to a new place and takes on a new case, the very first question she asks people there is, tell me about the history of this place. That's because she knows every town has one. Those layers of time buried and built over, buried and built over again, that reveal why things are the way they are. From the bulldozing of black neighborhoods to make way for highways and parks, to brutal acts of violence like lynchings, erased from the public square, and over time from memory itself. Sherilyn wants us to see these scars of history all around us and how they impact the struggle for equal justice in America. She's actually compared this process of discovery to swallowing the red pill in the sci-fi action film, The Matrix. Because once you see the past and the present, you can't unsee it, nor should you want to. And that's what we're trying to see here in your hometown. And in listening to Sherilyn talk about that red pill, I wondered if she first took it as a child growing up in New York in the 1960s and 70s. And I really want to know if there's a connection between her civil rights work of rescuing history for justice and her personal story as the youngest daughter in an extraordinarily big family that included nine brothers and sisters and her mom and dad, Myrtle and Lester Eiffel, and what she experienced along the way in her hometown. We spoke remotely for this interview, and I began by turning around that first question Sherilyn likes to ask her clients. Tell me about the history of this place. When I was growing up in Jamaica, Queens, it was uh, where I was growing up was basically all black. White people had left. My father said that uh, we, we purchased our home from an older white woman. Um, there were 10 kids in our family. Mm-hmm. So plus with our parents, that's 12 people in a very small home, one bathroom. Um, and I actually was just back in my old neighborhood and like the houses seemed so close together. I mean, I don't remember. I thought there was like an actual driveway between them, but <laughs> the houses were very, very close together. Uh, but this was the, 
you know, first home for basically all the black people who lived in this neighborhood. So this was people trying to come out of the working class into the into the middle class, not with expendable cash, but believing that home ownership was like this important thing. Now, I have to tell you, there were many instances during my childhood where our phone was turned off because we couldn't pay the bill or where we didn't have enough oil in the tank for, you know, sufficient heat in the home. Uh, where, you know, dinner was kind of dicey, but we lived in a house. And so my father was Mm -hmm. convinced and uh, attempted to convince us that we were middle class as a result of that. So that that ethic was in the neighborhood that you, you, uh, you know, wanted to be a homeowner. But what it was also true was that we were just in the period in which busing was really happening in New York for Mm -hmm. um, school integration. Um, I was getting bused to um, a school in Flushing, uh, along with my my um, sister, who's a year older than I am, and my sister, who's five years older than I am. But I was bused from kindergarten. So I'm the first in my family to be bused to school from the very beginning. If you looked at my class picture from first grade, I am the only little black girl. There's just me, and then there's a black boy, Maurice. Um, and, and, you know, and now I look back and I can see kind of what was happening. You would take a test if you did well on the test and they put you in what they called the SP classes, which were the advanced classes. Mm -hmm. But I could see that they were dribbling us in, you know, as black students into those classes. So I'm the only one in the first grade class, right? By third grade, by fourth grade, you see more and more black kids, uh, being put in the, in the SP classes, um, we were very aware of race, you know, um, you know, my whole neighborhood was black. So those are the kids you rode the bus with. Those are the kids you went home with. Those are the kids that you saw in the lunchroom. Those are the kids in your neighborhood. In my actual classroom in those first early years, it was mostly white kids and then later kind of more evened out. But we were very aware of it. I don't ever recall a time of like not knowing, you know, that we were black and they were white. And, and in terms of your house, I, I, I'm fascinated. You mentioned that there were there were 12 of you. Uh, and mm-hmm. one bathroom. Uh, so mm-hmm. where did you sleep, Sherilyn? Or did you share well, a room with your <laughs> your sisters? Or <laughs> Are you kidding? A room? A, I, I, sl- I slept in the same bed as my sister, who's a year older than me, until I was 15. We didn't have bunk beds like that. You know, that would have seemed so modern and exciting. No, no, no. We slept in the same bed. So the same room. Are you kidding me? I mean, I can remember standing on the line, like, to go to the bathroom, you know. Um, but, the, you know, wow. one of the things that I think people forget when you have big families is that the age spread... It's huge. So, you know, I was five when my brother was getting married. He was 26, right? So we weren't all in the same house at the same time for very long. My dad is the youngest of 10 also, same as you. And my Mm -hmm. uncle Ed was 20 years older than my dad. So that was was the age uh, range. And what's interesting is my dad, because of that, when when my uncle Ed was was in the Pacific in the war and his other brothers found out there was a new baby in the family, they thought it was his. They didn't think it was a, okay, it was a sibling. They thought, oh, Ed had a brother because <laughs> they were, they were yeah. so surprised by it. Um, and my, yeah. my grandparents were sort of embarrassed by it. They were in their 40s uh, when this happened. But as a result, yeah. one of the sad things for my dad is that he lost his father when he was 10 and his mother when he was 14. So Uncle Ed, mm-hmm. the oldest, didn't marry, yeah. but essentially raised my father. So he had oh, no children of his God. own, but sort of gave everything up to raise my dad. Wow. And one of the connection points to, to, that I've been mindful about with you is that I know that you lost your mom when you were five. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, people think of the year 1968 as oh. another turbulent time in our country, Vietnam War mm-hmm. raging, you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. the loss of two great figures, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther mm-hmm. King Jr. I mm-hmm. mean, a lot happening. And the country was mourning, but you were mm-hmm. privately you know, losing mm-hmm. someone, a great tree yeah. in your own life. Yeah, 68 is very heavy for me. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I feel like I vaguely remember Dr. King's funeral. I feel like I remember that. 
We know, God, that life is but a moment in eternity, and that he who lives for the moment will surely die. Yet he who lives for eternity and dedicates his life to those ultimate principles of truth, justice, and love as this man has done will never die. Inspire us to You know, for me, my mom's death, you know, in December kind of caps off <laughs> this year. And sadly, I think it capped it off for her too. You know, my older siblings talk about how difficult that year was for her. Try to imagine you're a young woman, you know you're terminally ill, mm. you're leaving behind all your babies, and you see, you know, these, um, you know, these assassinations of these young men, right? Um, and, and my older siblings talk about that, about uh, uh, the killing of Bobby Kennedy, you know, that summer and, and how devastating that was. Um, so yeah, that year has always felt to me like, you know, like if you say it, it kind of just, you know, if you say 1968, it carries for me just something very, uh, very heavy and, and ominous. Um, and uh, it was difficult. It was life changing, family changing. I think particularly just families who live, lose parents and especially who lose moms. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think we ever recovered from it, to be honest with you. Uh, I just think it it was so... Um, so difficult for us. I have three mm. children. Um, I, you know, and frequently thought like, I'm going to lose it. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know how <laughs> I have she two did it. I'm already losing it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's but she was a very powerful figure. It's not like she was some, I mean, I, and now I understand that she was dying, you know, and, and I don't remember a time when she wasn't sick, right? Because she was sick, um, you know, when I was quite young, um, so I I always remember her, you know, going to the doctor and I, I frequently went with her because, you know, I was home before I went to school. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I would sit yes. in the waiting room. So, so I, so I remember that, but I don't remember her not having power. Like, I don't remember her being diminished at all in terms of the power in our home. You know, she was the leader and I'm very grateful for what she managed to, um, put into me, which I do think has very powerfully influenced me. She loved me. I mean, in a kind of, you know, maybe the way you would if you knew you were going to leave behind your very young child, Mm -hmm. but maybe the way you, all of us love our very young children, you know? Um, She was, she, you know, she was a a strict disciplinarian with everyone, but she loved me, you know? She she loved to kiss me and have me come in, come in the house, you know, give me a kiss, Mm -hmm. give me a hug, you know? There was, I can Mm -hmm. remember that. Um, And I just, I, I think it's remarkable. I think those are the things that shape your sense of yourself. Your sense of self-esteem, yeah. it's so important to feel that you... And security. Um, and security, yes. Mm-hmm. And you said she died in December, so was it around your birthday? Because I know your birthday is the 17th yeah. of December. Yeah, it was the 5th. Someday soon we all will be together It's the fates of love Until then
I do remember Christmas, though. I do remember Christmas because neighbors, you know, brought over presents. Yeah, I can even remember like one of the dolls I got from a neighbor. You know, people people tried to be helpful. And did you go to your mom's Mm -hmm. funeral? Yes, you did. Yeah. Yes. I was going to ask you about that because I, you know, I I was thinking about what that must have been like for you because I lost my grandfather and uncle when I was four and five and I went to their wakes and their funerals. So I Mm -hmm. saw them Mm -hmm. in their caskets and I Mm -hmm. went to their burials. And it was such a searing memory for a young mind, a young person. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that it created in me almost sort of a, a dividing line in, in, my, in, in history where I sensed around me as a little boy, my grandmother being so sad, my mom being sad, mm-hmm. my aunt. And as someone who worked to become an historian, it made sense because I was really tr- always realized that if I could go back to before they died and, re- and sort of conjure the memories of my grandfather and uncle, mm-hmm. it made them happy, you know? And so I was very mm. aware of sort of the trauma of the loss in my family and sort of these great trees falling, but also that, that memories could be a comfort. To, to pick up on the theme that you just um, described, I, I think it's part, part of actually being the youngest in a family as well. Mm-hmm. You sense, and, and then, you know, my mom passes away. So, so there's like a whole part of the family that you can never be part of. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like there is there. I I do feel that way. I did. I did always feel like um, I wanted to be part of them. You know, they they seemed so cool and amazing. And and they had they had a life that they could talk about. I love I mean, I'm you know, I love to hear stories like I pester my older siblings about stories, about what their childhood was like, about what things they remember about not, you know, about my mom, but also just about their lives. Like I'm eternally fascinated by the family that existed before the family that I knew, which was different, you know, which was a different family, right? Because of the years, but also because, you know, mom was really not, you know, for, for most of my life, a part of it. So yeah. that is part something that was very precious to me and still is very precious. To me. I will still like a kid, you know, just like and then tell me what happened. And then, yes. who, you know, who was there? Yeah. And who like, you know, kind of like you're asking me, like, I will just I'm, I'm eternally fascinated by the family that ex- that existed, you know, before I, com- um, I, I before the family. I knew. That. And yeah. we would we would often and I look back on it. I, people don't do this anymore, but we would have mm. slideshows in our in our like we'd get together mm. for Christmas or Thanksgiving. And at some point in the evening, the lights would go out and they'd put this the, the, oh, the, I love the, the carousel on. And it would always be yeah. some trip my grandparents took or and there would be these photos of the family oh, together with the ones who are mm-hmm. gone in it. And I was just like you I thinking, I, I want to live in that. I want to live in those yes. memories. I'm that way about the civil rights movement. I would watch those documentaries and I would think like, okay, how was I not born then? How, what, what you know, that I want to be in that. Like I'm yes. eternally kind of um, a time traveler, yeah. you know. And I'm so jealous of these generations, you know, where people have cameras with them all the time. Their whole lives are documented. That's right. Yes. They have an instant archive. And I think, what? Like, how, what I wouldn't give for that. Absolutely. You know, what I wouldn't give for all these little videos that you just have on your phone. And, um, and I've thought about it a lot during COVID, you know, this past year, especially last year uh, in the spring when these awful people were saying, well you know, these people are elderly and they're going to pass away anyway. I mean, these heartless, terrible people. And um, 
maybe this person was only going to live another 10 years or maybe they were going to only live another, just the terrible things that people were saying. And, and for me, I'll just say what I thought was what I wouldn't give to have five more years with my mom, which would allow me to remember her voice, right? It would allow me to actually have like rich, full memories of her, right? I mean, when people say things cavalierly like that, I'm, I'm so grateful that she didn't pass away until I was almost six because I at least have some memories, right? If she had passed away when I was three, I wouldn't have any. No. So for me, like every year makes a difference, right? In, it really does. Um, in, in how you can access the life of your family. And I just think it's so wonderful. People probably don't can't appreciate what it means that they have photographs and videos in, of their whole family's life. And, uh, you know, 30, 40 years from now, they'll be able to say, like, this is what happened on that day. And then this is what happened yeah. the next day. You know, it's yes. amazing. You and your sister Darlene were born in the States, but the other, mm-hmm. the older eight siblings were all born in Panama, um, and they mm-hmm. came with your parents in 59 mm-hmm. to New York. What did you learn by watching them grow up, and what role did they play in your life? as this trajectory was completely turned upside down by the loss of your mom? The sense of connection to them was incredibly powerful. Mm. Always has been. I I mean, I say to this day, uh, uh, my brother, I lost my brother a few years ago, really beloved. And and I used to say to him, uh, which is the truth, that I'm, I'm always trying not to shame them. I'm always trying to make them proud. And he's like, what would you do that would shame? Like, what is that? Why is that even a thing? Like, you know, he thought it was crazy. But like, nothing makes me happier than when they think that something I did was great. And I, and I, when I was a kid, you know, I thought I want to have 10 kids too, because I just thought it was so cool to be in a, you know, super big family. Uh, obviously, I changed my mind on that. And, and we were free, you know, we were freaks. Like, I didn't know anybody else who had such a big family. And yeah. the only people we knew who had a family that was that big, who we therefore identified with, were the Kennedys. I mean, you know, like noble yet penniless, you know, but we were, but we were the analog, you know, we were like the black Kennedys. Yes. Um, and they sound like extraordinary people. I mean, I, I just, you know. They are. Whatever I have been able to accomplish is part of my family, Right. And I always think it's important to that, you know, I just don't believe when, when people talk about being self-made or uh, I just find it so shocking that people would eat this almost like blasphemy. Um, and it's just not something I would ever say. My sister, Darlene, who's a year older than I am, you know, was just my, my rock for many years. We were just, th- there's something to like, you go to a school and you, and you always know somebody, right? <laughs> Your sister is there. She's been there a year ahead of you, right? The, the anchor of that. Um, there's nobody, like if the two no. of us get together, if I'm going to just like laugh until I'm sick, like it's going to be with her, you know? <laughs> yeah. And didn't your one brother who was an electrician sign in the promissory yes. note for your college? And that's amazing. Yes. And people don't understand what it meant for a black man to be in the union, right? right? Oh, and to get yes. in the union in 1969 in the local three union and to have worked diligently. And he worked on everything in New York. He did every auto show. He was part of the team working to repair the electrical system after 9-11. Like that's my brother's life. Okay. So like amazing human beings. But, but I think that because uh, he worked in a trade, you know, people wouldn't think, oh, how was he connected to, you know, my walk as a lawyer or Mm -hmm. whatever, but that's the connection. The connection is 
that, and that's what big families do, right? They pay it forward, you know? When I got admitted to Vassar College, they were like, here's the scholarship. The scholarship was huge. It was, seemed amazing. And they were like, here's your student loan part. And then here's your parent part. And it's like, we, can, we don't have any of it, you know? And, but he was the one who had like the good credit, you know? He had the good credit and the home and, and he could sign that promissory note so I could get my student loan. I think it's so important for people to understand how what my family was able to accomplish is not you know, only because we we're an extraordinary family, but because we were coming up in a particular time, you could rely on public goods to move you along. When my, my sister and brother could go to City College at the time that the registration was $85 a semester. And I can tell you, we were always late. It was like always late. We didn't have the $85. They didn't have the book money. I mean, like that's how much we were scrabbling for money, but you could pull it off, yeah. right? I've said I received the best K through 12 education I could possibly have received in the New York City public school system during that brief period when there was real integration happening. It also happens to coincide with the period when there was the greatest federal investment in education. And thus also coincides with the period in which there was the the smallest uh, achievement gap, racial achievement gap. When people say they don't know, how how do we do it? How do we close it? Well, we, we did know actually. My high school was the most integrated experience I've ever had in my life, not just black, white, but Latino and Asian American. And it was, you know, very much shaped my view of what public education can be. Yeah. And your school was new. It was built in 71. Yeah, Hillcrest High School. Um, and I remember when it was built, we were like, is this some plan? Are they trying to now? Because, you know, I, I should have gone to John Bound High School. I remember we had a big conversation about it with my dad. And, you know, that was the question. You know, my father was very kind of political, real race man. Is this a plan to try to keep get black kids out of their school? You know, what, where did this Hillcrest High School come from? You know, so we were very, <laughs> we were very uh, suspicious uh, at first. Yes. Um, but I also say that uh, it was an extraordinary experience. You know, I always loved school. So like many kids in very large families do, because, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, out of the house. <laughs> um, so I loved it. I, I was bright. I knew I was bright. Um, and um, I had some amazing English teachers that I remember to this day, one who I still actually talk to. Um, journalism teacher, Gary Stern. We talk all the time. I, I mentioned him on Twitter the other day because I said, you know, like the first week he taught us how to fold the New York Times yeah, appropriately on, yes. on the subway. On yeah. the subway. And so that was him, Gary Stern. So it's yeah. not and sort so, of getting um, people space. <laughs> important, important lessons. These are, these are, you know, just New York City yeah. lessons. And where did you feel like you, you most belonged in high school? And where did you feel like you least fit in sort of in that, in, in those years? Where was your scene? Scene? Well, again, I still came from a very strict home, so I wasn't very much allowed to participate in scenes. <laughs> but, but, so, so yeah. So, um, no, I just, I had a group of, you know, a, a group of my friends. We were from this, you know, basically the same neighborhood, a group of black girls who'd known each other. We'd all gone to school together since elementary school, right? And, um, and, and we just, we, we had a good time. My kind of little separation was that I was super into school. Like, I was super into academics. And I edited the literary magazine and the yearbook and you know that those were kind of my things um yeah but it was it was the fun that you have kind of with your girlfriends it was going to house we did you know it's all house parties in those days and and yeah. music was a big part of our lives um late, late 70s was yeah, like really yeah, yeah. happening in new york oh absolutely absolutely you know you come home i can remember you, you came home you put on there were three stations there was 92 q kiss fm oh yes and then, of course, WBLS 107.5. That was, these were the three stalwarts, right? All right. Hey, youngsters, we're going to talk about it. Good time. All you need, really, is, uh, well, first you need a good education. 
words. I know it's going to sound weird to you, but the broader your base, the better you have of uh, any career. So that's first. These are the OJs. Good afternoon. And Mary when you came from school, you just went between those three, you know, because you wanted your songs, and it was and and the music was like amazing. Um, and so, you know, music and, and, and dancing and going to parties, that was, you know, that was really a lot of fun. Yeah. But otherwise, we had a pretty sedentary home life. Like, we didn't do things, you know. <laughs> we didn't, um, and we didn't, we didn't have the kind of money where, like, we went on vacation every year or anything like that. You mentioned that your dad was strict. Let's talk about him and your relationship mm. with him. Lester yeah. Eiffel Sr. He was, mm-hmm. you know, a social worker in Harlem, mm-hmm. very involved with the AME Church um, uh, mm-hmm. in, in your community. And someone that was very politically engaged, but also strict. Well, you know, strict and also like emotionally not available. He remarried uh, several years after my mom died. So I had a stepmom and um, and he was, you know, he was a um, was very uh, um, conservative. In, in, the, in this following okay. sense, you know, he wore a suit to work. He had a fedora hat, you know, um, you know, he had a briefcase. He, what I realized later was such a blessing and a wonder is I never had to wonder where my dad was. He, my dad was mm. not like he might be in a bar or no, that, that was not, you know, he went to work. <laughs> he came home. <laughs> he, you know, he had dinner. We watched the news. Usually he watched a baseball game, which is how I ended up you know, liking baseball, which is on all the time. Oh, that might be gone. The wind taking it. That ball is out of here. A three-run homer for Reggie Jackson. And the Yankees lead 7 to nothing. Holy cow. And he did not get all of that ball. A three-run home run for Reggie Jackson. He, now, he took us to Yankee games, which was great in those days. Again, you could take you at that point. There were... Uh, three or four kids at home, right? He, he could actually take yeah, you, you know, and you could afford yeah, it. You could park. Yeah, it. Yeah. Um, now, can't imagine mm-hmm. it. But um, so huge, huge baseball fan. Um, you know, I certainly liked a Schaefer beer, a uh, <laughs> one, you know, but like I never saw him drunk, like nothing like that, yeah, you yeah. know? So so he was very conservative, which when you're a kid, it's like, oh, how boring. You know, he goes to work, he comes home, right? Um, it was only later when I got to college and heard some of the exploits of what people's parents did that I was like, what? <laughs> What do you mean? You yeah. know, but what is funny is there's a there's an age differential piece to it. My father was super strict. He didn't want us to go out. We couldn't date and, you know, really at all. Um, my older siblings <laughs> will talk about, you know, my father used to take them to the Apollo Theater to see Jackie Wilson wow. and James Brown. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That guy? I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, we weren't allowed to go on our, they weren't allowed to go on their own. So he would take them, they said, and he would just sit there while we screamed our heads off and like, you know, so like, I mean, you know, by the time I was in high school, he was a, he was elderly by the time I was in high school, to be yes. frank. He was slowing um, down. And, and they, so they had a different dad. You know, in a family that big, there are probably three families. There are like three different experiences that happen. 
you know, over yes. the course of the life of that family with their parents. Yep. And so you had the the older version of him in, in a way, but also because yes. he was home a lot and watching TV and especially uh, political mm-hmm. you know, news shows like yes. the press, you sort of got that part of him, which was, you know, watching news with him. I mean, now we're living in such a news saturated oh. time. Yeah. But, you know, back then that was that must have been distinguishing for you as a kid compared to your friends. The most important thing I learned was that you don't consume the news. Mm-hmm. Chad Huntley, NBC News, New York. And David Brinkley, NBC News, Washington. You know, we were always talking about it while it was happening. You know, it, it wasn't like, you know, uh, David Brinkley was bringing the, you know, the tour and the Talmud, right? It was, you know, the new, they were saying whatever they were saying, and my father was saying what he was saying, you know, which is... Yeah, but that they don't know that so you know, he he had a commentary. And yes. so that sense that you that that you, there's a critical eye you're bringing to the news. Um I, you know, I I now realize was being developed then. I don't ever recall us just passively passively absorbing the news. Yeah. And we watched TV a lot. You know, in those days we didn't have 500 channels. We had channel, you know, we had ABC, CBS, uh NBC. Uh, then you had, you know, Channel 11, WPIX, you had Channel 9, where you watched the Million Dollar Movie, you had the public television <laughs> channel, Channel 13, and that yep. was it. And they were all showing the Watergate hearings. For God's sakes, there was nothing else to watch. It was absolutely <laughs> crushing. I mean, I'm a very little kid at this time. Yep. We were bored out of our minds. <laughs> and so you just sit there, you just sit there, and it was just hour after hour. So boring, until suddenly it wasn't. Like there was, um, you could feel the shift. And hmm. the shift happened when John Dean testified. As the president discussed the, the present status of the situation, I told him that all I've been able to do was to contain the case and assist in keeping it out of the White House. I also told him that there was a long way to go before this matter would end, and that certainly, I certainly could make no assurances that the day would not come when this matter would not start to unravel. And I remember, you know, this one woman comes in, super glamorous, Maureen Dean, right? She's got, you know, the white hair parted and the coat and, and something's happening. What he's describing is something that even I can understand is problematic, right, for this president. Uh, and so I remember when it got not boring. And, and then, of course you know, there was Barbara Jordan. And um, yes, and I will say that definitely changed my life. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today, I am an inquisitor, and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total, and I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Woman, a black woman with a voice of absolute moral authority 
holding a room like that, speaking with absolute certainty. Uh, and as I've said, you know, not being on television for entertainment, you know, or because she's glamorous, right? Very, very powerful for me in thinking about who I could be as a woman. You really needed this, and especially for Black girls, because as I said, mm-hmm. there weren't that many of us on TV. We, I still remember being, you know, called to the TV whenever when there was a Black person on, um, you know. Uh, and actually, my father used to do that. If yeah. I mean, there was there was Barbara Jordan, there was Shirley Chisholm, there was Yvonne Brathwaite Burke, who was a, a council person in Los Angeles. My father would call me if they came on the television. So I just think that. Women tend to need to see that those you know role models, black women certainly, and certainly black girls, um, and particularly in that period of time. You know, I always credit that too of thinking about my family. You know, we've got we're, we're very much a kind of helping family, a service family. I always say that service is the family business. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we've got the nurses and the teachers, and which is what you told little black girls they could be if they were super smart. Um, yes, you know, in the early '60s. And and by the time I just again I talk about that period of time in which I went to school that was just the period when you could begin to tell little black girls that they could be a lawyer or a doctor. So it's not surprising that the the, the, the two youngest of us, nine and ten, you know, are a doctor and a lawyer, right? That's also yeah. about what was happening generationally uh, in terms of gender in this country and what possibilities we were putting into the head of girls who were smart. Uh, were we telling them they could be teachers and nurses or were we telling them they could be doctors and lawyers? Nothing wrong with any of it, but just the opening up possibilities um, is part of the journey, I think, um, of how, uh, you know, kind of gender roles opened up, began to open up, um, particularly in the early 70s. Based upon the questions propounded by Senator Javits, and I ask you again, is there anything you can think of in your mind or in your disposition to prevent you from acting fairly effectively and efficiently for the United States government in this position? Not at all, sir. I believe that, oh, I'm certain that there's no possible reason that I could have to not adequately represent this government, which is, after all, my government, just as it is all of our government. Well, thank you, Judge Marshall. Thank Any you, other sir. questions from the committee? I understand that for your high school yearbook, you actually inscribed that your goal was to be the first black woman Supreme Court justice, um, which is really I interesting did. because... And you're, you were only four years old or five years old when, when Thurgood Marshall broke that barrier in 67, right? And here you are in 1980 naming a dream. And here we are in 2021 where we now have an president who is committed to doing that. But it's it's 40 years later, 40 years <laughs> on from your dream. And you realize it still yeah. hasn't happened. Um, and what I was going to ask you is that, you know, I, I read social media, of course, and a number of people have mentioned you as sort of their dream to, to have that role, uh, to be that mm-hmm, person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not to put you on the spot about whether or not you, you would want that still, but, you know, if you were to, to, to have that appointment, Sherilyn, you know, uh, people aren't supposed to bring their politics onto the bench, but they do bring their experiences. What, what from your childhood would you, would you want to bring with you to be mindful of? At this moment, people in the country are very much focused on issues of police violence. You know, my first experience of this uh, was when I was 10, you know, and and an NYPD officer shot and killed a 10-year-old boy. In a racially charged case that took over these streets in South Jamaica in April of 1973, after undercover NYPD officer Thomas Shea had shot and killed 10-year-old Clifford Glover, after he and his stepfather were stopped. Thomas Shea was charged and tried for murder, but after he was found not guilty, the neighborhood exploded. It it resonated for me because I was 10 and the boy was 10. 
Um, and and, and I, what I shared is that I didn't even remember much about it. I just know that it happened. I did remember that the officer's name was Shay, that he got away with it. it what scares me is that I remembered his name. <laughs> I, I didn't talk about this until um, Ferguson happened, until after Mike Brown was killed. And I happened to be in St. Louis doing a radio show and I, and I spoke about this case. And, um, and I remembered it. I remembered the parents talking about it at the, at the bus stop. I remembered, um, you know, that the front page of the paper on the coffee table. I, I, you know, I remembered those things. And when I got back to my hotel room, somebody, uh, uh, tweeted at me and said, you know, I found the story and there it was. And it was Clifford Glover who had been killed that Saturday morning while being out with his dad. And, and the officer's name was Shay. Yes, it was. So this was 40 years later. And I still remembered this, had not talked about it literally ever, <laughs> don't think, until that day. And, um, and I think about what it means that a 10-year-old black child knows something about the justice system in America that apparently many extremely accomplished adult white people purport not to know. Uh, and that means that... Um, Whatever, however well-educated you are, whatever the fancy law school, however well you did, whatever your fancy clerkship, um, you need to have some humility about what it takes to actually do justice. There are 10-year-old children who know more about what justice is like in America, who know more about race in America, who know more about inequality in America than... um, some people who are grown and, and accomplished and running their own companies. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the, the most important thing first is that, is to understand that it takes more than the words on the paper. Now Clifford Glover, who was 10 years old, his stepfather Armstead and him, we're told, were trying to get to work on time that day. But on their way, you know that's 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 sort of the other New York. You were talking about the New York of the public good yes. before. Yeah. There's also this. Yes. You were growing up in this New York too. Yeah, and 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 it never felt like um, that that was a shocking surprise that there was you know the other New York. But but what's interesting is that because as you point out, this was a period of tremendous upheaval. Mm-hmm. I had a, a sense that anything was possible. I, I, I mean, I will, I, I actually, the Watergate hearings and the um, resignation of Nixon, that was super powerful for me, right? Because it suggests, it, in, to want to be a lawyer, certainly to want to be a civil rights lawyer, as I did, is to know that there is injustice, right? right. So you are, that means you know. Yes. But you actually believe that you are capable of working to improve the system or else you wouldn't want to take it on, right? You, you know, so... So those two things are happening at the same time. Um, and that's what it means to be a civil rights lawyer, is to be very clear-eyed about the weaknesses in American democracy, about fundamental mm-hmm. inequality, about racial inequality, but to believe that there is a role for you to play and for the law to play in transforming the inequality in that system. Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window 
or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You've had, you've had this remarkable career, um, and you know, you are now president and director of counsel of the NAACP Legal and Educational Defense Fund. It's, you know, one of the, it's the, it's the legal arm of the civil rights movement, you know, and, and such an important force in our society. And one of the things that I was really struck in, in, in reading your work and, and hearing you speak before is that you've compared sort of your ability to see the unseen history in, in the physical landscapes of our, of our society um, You've, you've compared mm-hmm. that to, <laughs> to swallowing the red pill in the Matrix, and it yeah, sort of like gives yeah. you a superpower that you see this other dimension, which is the past, and how it overlays yes. onto the present. And I was going to ask you, you know, is there a story when you first remember taking that red pill and sort of, oh my goodness, now I see something that I didn't notice before, but now I can't not see that? Um. You know, it's it's a process. To this day, I'm still learning so much. And one of the things, you know, just to go back to your earlier question about like if you're sitting on the court is to know yeah. how much you don't know. I've always said that understanding race uh, and inequality is like one of the most rigorous disciplines. You know, you have to know psychology and history and labor economics and, um, you know, and, and law and, uh, you know, it's, it's unbelievable all of the disciplines that come into understanding it. So I feel like I'm constantly yeah. learning. We can't do that. We're going to keep this neighborhood. We're going to keep Rosedale predominantly white the way it is, and we will not let a bad element in. We're going to fight This is our right, too. You know, they talk about rights for minorities. Where the hell are our rights for whites? That's what we're all about, equal rights for whites. I, but, you know, it's funny. I can remember. It's, it's so interesting because the show has come back up over the last year. But I was a kid when I saw the show Rosedale the way it is, which was a PBS special about, um, you know, the violent resistance to integration on Long Island. Yes. Yeah. And, and I remember watching. I mean, my, I watched it with my father. I, I, not only did I watch it, but I came upstairs and I wrote in my journal about it. I was so upset. Oh, wow. I was so upset that I came up, and that's how I knew, you know, Rosedale, the way it is. Like, that stayed in my head. I came and wrote about it, and I was just so distressed by what I saw. Smash the KKK! Smash the KKK! Hey, yo! To the whites of Rosedale, the demonstration was more aid from outsiders for outsiders, and it provoked a reply.
I was just so distressed by what I saw. And remember, as I said, my neighborhood was a black neighborhood, but we were where this was kind of a white flight neighborhood. And we also knew where those people flew to, which was largely Long Island, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so Long Island was always kind of out there, right? You know, it was the suburbs. Um, there were some black people who lived out there, but we didn't pay much attention. We, we went to Long Island to go to the state parks. You know, that was our mm-hmm. thing as a family. We would go to Heckscher State Park, oh, yeah. um, you know, or you went to, yeah, that was our mm-hmm. thing. We would, you know, every state mm-hmm. park, Sunken Meadow, Wildwood, you know, we didn't go on vacations, but we went to state yeah. parks every holiday. You know, you got up early, you made the sandwiches, you, you know, fried the chicken, you packed the <laughs> hamper and you went to these, you know, great state parks, which is also part of the public goods um, that, you know, when you're in a big family, uh, you can take advantage of going to, to well-kept state parks. So that was Long Island was that. But this Rosedale, the way it is, was like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait one doggone second. You know, this is how it's going down. Uh, you know, in a place not very far from me, you know, it's like I'm watching TV all the time, watching all these documentaries about the South. And I, you know, we were, as I said, we were exposed to, you know, our own racial incidents in school and so forth, but we lived in separate neighborhoods. So it wasn't, we didn't have these encounters in my neighborhood, right? Where you lived, you know, you had things that happened in school and then you got on your bus and you went home with all the black kids to your black neighborhood. Seeing Rosedale the way it is was something else because, this encounter between, particularly between black and white kids, to hear adults talking in that awful, hideous, irresponsible, oh, racist way, yes. um, it was powerful for and me. And to set the scene for people who don't know it, they can go Google yeah. it. You can find it now because the, the New York yes. Times recently and you should. resurfaced. Yeah, it was done in '75, and Rosedale, I guess it's about five miles, maybe south uh, southeast of Jamaica, and. Uh, so yeah. it's not too far away, but it can be a world away no. in cer- certain ways. But the really searing scene are these uh, African-American kids on their bikes who've come down from Cambria Heights, sort of, which is, you know, again, just a few miles north in Queens. They've, they've, they've ridden their bikes into this neighborhood and they're surrounded by these white kids who are pelting them with rocks and calling them all kinds of names. It is a, a horror show. And it's, it is in New York City in 1975. And there you are, as you say, you were, you were, you know, 12 years old, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So you wrote, you wrote in your journal because it, it, it produced such an immediate reaction in you, it sounds like. Yeah, I was, I, I was one of the few times I was struck dumb. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't speak. Yeah. And I went and wrote in my journal about like, wow, this is what, you know, this is the truth. This is what's really happening. I mean, it really was like a, you know, it, it was one of those red pill moments. I mean, I just will never forget it. Yeah. I will never forget it. And when I watch it now, I mean, you know, and I obviously I've been a civil rights lawyer for a very long time. And so, you know, none of it is surprising and I can place it in kind of historical context and so forth. But it's still like super painful to mm. watch. Um, and, and the through line, of course, is like, it's, I think when kids see what happens to other kids, it's like Clifford Glover and I being the same age, you know? Yes. That was it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, and when you saw that, uh, video or you, or you read about Clifford Glover, you know, in the newspaper, mm-hmm. you mentioned that there were sort of racial incidents at school. What was something that you directly observed that wasn't sort of something you saw in the press or the news? Oh, was it, it was, d- yeah, it was always about treatment. Treat- it was always about treatment. It was always about, you know, a black kid being punished for things that white kids mm. wouldn't be punished for, being punished more harshly than a white kid mm-hmm. or um, not being selected for something that they were obviously super qualified for in favor of a white kid. You know, it was those kinds of, yeah. um, you know, incidents that were very apparent um, or white kids 
um, you know, how much the word of white kids was trusted, you know, um, in any dispute, you know, between kids uh, by the adults, you know, and, and, and then later teachers, you know, I mean, I can remember my, one of my high school teachers who was just, she couldn't believe that I was in this accelerated class and, you know, and she wanted me to go and get permission from the department. I mean, she was notorious and well-known as being awful. Um, we, we later became actually good friends and she, she's the person who selected me to, to, um, edit the literary journal. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so she but her, and yeah, she did, she did, but her initial, you know, that I'm sitting in the classroom and she just thought, well, she must not be, you know, um, so, you know, that the, the expect, the low expectations, um, you know, all of that was there. I mean, I remember the feeling. Yeah. I remember the feeling of just like, how dare she underestimate who I am and, you know, how brilliant I am. Yes. <laughs> and I was not that, I was not, um, I had no um, false modesty about what I thought was my <laughs> intellectual capacity. Well, and so I just, I just remember that feeling. I mean, I was almost kind of shaking with, with how angry I was at her yeah. diminishment of yeah. me, you know. So yeah, you feel those you things. Do. You feel those things. And also, you know, thinking about that red pill, now from the vantage point of distance, you know, having had a career where you've really been on the front lines, both as a professor, as an investigator, a researcher, and as a courtroom lawyer, um, how do you see New York in, in a fuller way? I'm thinking about the physical landscape. I'm thinking about the ghosts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the yes, erasures. Yes. Um, so first I would just add you know, in terms of who I am, you know, it's also as a legal historian, you know, I ended up writing about um, lynching in in part to try to, to try to suggest that there's this other world that people don't see. And that actually there's been a quite concerted effort to have people not talk Mm -hmm. about, but that it is, it is present, you know, um, and so I do, you know, when I'm my travels around this country, and sadly, I know a little bit too much about lynching, at least my kids would say, you know, and I show up almost anywhere. And I think, oh, yes, but, in, you know, in 1917, this is what happened. And my kids just like, they hate traveling with me for that reason. <laughs> but it is helpful for me to just know that the, the most beautiful, quiet little town with the perfect, you know, um, town square has a history. Uh, and there's a racial, there's racial history everywhere in this country, even where people think black people are not. If black people are not there, there's a reason they're not there. So, uh, so that's real for me in New York. It's New York is a place of a tremendous inequality. Mm-hmm. It just is, you know. Um, and when I was a kid, those things were just kind of understood as uh, that was just what it was. It just understood as inevitable, you know. Uh, who lives in Manhattan and who doesn't? Um, who lives, you know, on the on the east side and who doesn't? This is where wealthy people live. This is where wealthy people do not live. Um, the issue of gentrification, you know, so I grew up in Queens, but then uh, obviously I lived in Manhattan during law school. I was at NYU Law School and I lived in the village. Uh, and then I lived for uh, five years in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, where I lived in Brooklyn now, I could not c- conceivably afford the way in which black people are just kind of moving around to accommodate whatever is the desire of white people to either live in the su- suburbs or live in the city, which, you know, changes every 10 years yes. um, and how black people get priced out of the neighborhoods that they grew up in, um, obviously the education system, um, you know, this deeply segregated education system, which I know does, is not inevitable because I went to an integrated one mm-hmm. in New York. So I know it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and, 
And so, you know, you, it's just astonishing to, to, you know, I went to my old neighborhood a, a, a few months ago, as I said, and, um, you know, it's just, this was a place that was able to launch people, you know, to a trying to become middle class and to just see, you know, kind of who's still stuck and you can see what is stuck. You can see the failure to really, you know, uh, provide the kind of revitalization mm-hmm. that always is the conversation of something that's coming, but that never comes for so many black communities. Um, you know, you can see a, a, a system that still doesn't provide us the, the means to be able to real, have real mobility uh, in our lives. And so I'm, I'm extremely conscious of inequality in New York. And it's pretty infuriating because, you know, I, I, like most kids, you grew up with your New York dreams. You know, one day I'm going to, you know. Um, yes. And, and it's just, exactly. yeah, you're, you're not really thinking about the ways in which you are being structurally held in place. place. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really quite distressing actually. And that's why I so push for these kind of public, uh, for greater public engagement around the truth about who we are. And, and, and even, I, and I do believe that like beginning with the physical landscape really helps. Yes. Like why do these people live on the, you know, why, why does, why is the South side, the South side, mm-hmm. right? Why is, yes. why is the upper West side, the upper West side with our vision of who lives there and what is comprised of that community, right? Why do we think of South Jamaica Queens a certain way and flushing another way? Like what, is, what happened, you know, yes. and just helping people understand the physical history of where they are seems to me so important and to and I, and I do it not just so that people can know the history but so they can understand that what they see is not inevitable it was created by policies and practices that that ended up steering people to different places um and in different kinds of ways with different opportunities and once you know that that was that it's not inevitable and that it was created, you know you should know that you have the power to create something different. And that's what you've done. Yes. And I was going to say, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, we talked about your mom and sort of we were mm-hmm. sharing about loss in a family and how it creates the sense of before and after. And yes. I was wondering, do you see a connection between your work as a civil rights lawyer who 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 does rescue history? in pursuing justice and someone who mm-hmm. also grew up trying to fight against the erasure of memory because yes. holding on to it meant holding on to someone that meant a lot to you. Yes, I, I do actually. Um, I really do. I mean, I am kind of obsessed with, um, with history, what, particularly with black people's history. You know, what, what we did before, how we um, approached life, how we managed to survive, how we thrived, how we found joy. Um, I, I'm just fascinated by it. And I'm, there is no question in my mind that I'm fascinated by it because I feel like I was kind of cut off from my own um, in, a, in a very powerful way. And so I've kind of adopted other people's histories <laughs> for my obsession, you know? Yeah. Um, and, um, and also because I've, I, I feel in my own this extraordinary nobility mm. is the only word I can describe mm. for it. And... Mm-hmm. And I, and when I when I'm doing my work, I find it as well. I'm I'm just blown away by what I see as just a through line of incredible nobility, of courage, um, you know, of people who just have no idea what the outcome is going to be, but keep pushing. 
They could not possibly know. Right. There's, and, no, and the, there's no possible way my mother could imagine who I was going to be. That, I mean, that was just not no, part of her world, no. right? But, no. you know, she taught me to read when I was four, three, four, three, my, three, mm-hmm. my sister-in-law says. Um, you know, yes. um, well, you know she, she was folding things into me without knowing, what the, knowing she wouldn't see the outcome and, and not knowing what the outcome could possibly be. I'm fascinated by that. You know, people who tried to build homes and stake out land and started a school and built a church and traveled across the country and left the South and like, you know, whatever is the thing. It's just like, wh- how, I, I'm, I'm just, are we worthy of them? Do we have enough courage? Are we, are we noble enough to be worthy of these incredible people who had significantly fewer tools and resources than we have? And, um, and had no reason to hope that things would be drastically different, to be frank. And also in your own life, you, you, you had to achieve resiliency too, because you had this, this break in your life and you, you, you had to do the same thing in your own way. Yes. Well, you know, the good thing that (laughs) there's no good thing about losing somebody that you love very young, but you kind of know the thing that it takes people a long time to learn in life, (laughs) you know, which is like. That's right. Terrible upending things actually can happen, right? Like they, they, it's, you know, the thing we all fear losing people that we love. It's already happened to you. Has that made you more conscious as a mother of three children, right? About (laughs) what they, but about what you want them to know about your story, your childhood, for example, things that you, things that you can't know about your mother that you want them to know about your story yes. so that they don't have this the same sense of mystery that you might be left with. Yes, and actually I think I overdo it. I mean, I think they would say that, right? You know, it's like <laughs> but uh, you know, uh you've sadly hit the nail on the head. Yes. I am perpetually determined for them to know me, you know. Um I I'm I'm so committed to a certain transparency with them. Not everything obviously, you know, but yeah, probably too much. Um, but I do. I, I I try to tell them everything. They're like, eh, you know, <laughs> don't seem that interested. They have the blessing of having their parents, you know, for a very long yeah. time until they're, you know, through being adults. But yes, um, yes, I'm I'm quite obsessed with trying to tell them, trying to show them, trying to share with them, uh, trying to give them the stuff that when I'm gone, they can say, yes, but this is why she was this way. And this is what she did when she was seven. And this is how she saw this. Yeah. And um, yeah, things that I can never say. I, I, I want that for them. I end every interview the same way, Sherilyn, which is I, I read a passage from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, a song of myself, ultimate New York poet. And he writes th- these words. And then I want to ask you the final question. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. What I want to ask you, kind of bring our conversation about history and place and time together, especially in the context of childhood, context of childhood. 50, 100, 200 years from now, if someone in your family or someone in just our society discovers Sherilyn Eiffel <laughs> and wants to know you mm. and commune with your spirit and sort of walk where you walked, where would you tell them to go in your hometown of New York oh my God. and say, if you really want to know me, if you 
you really want to stand where I stood and I felt and feel me, go to this place in New York. Go to this place in my hometown. Where should we go? I think that's the most extraordinary question and one that I can't answer um, because I don't feel that um, I, I physically connected with one place in New York. And I, I'll just end by saying this. One of the, one of the features of um, you know, having something traumatic happen when you're a kid, which in, our, in my circumstance was the loss of my mom, is that you spend so much time in your imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an incredible imagina- imagination life. I mean, you could go to my home where, I, you know, the block I grew up uh, to try to get a sense of something. And I'd be there. Even when I was just there the other day, I was like, oh, wow, look where I was here. You know, like I, I feel there's part of me there. You know, you could go to my um, you could go to my elementary school, which I returned to a few years ago um, when I was giving the commencement address mm. at CUNY Law School. And the, and the commencement address was being held um, at Colden Auditorium, where my high school graduation was. But I went back to uh, PS 219. Um, in, in Flushing. And I felt, I, I went into the school and I felt myself there. I mean, I, mm. you know, I did, I did. Um, I go to Hillcrest. I feel myself there. Absolutely. Um, I go to Vassar a lot. <laughs> um, I feel myself there. I go to NYU law school. I'm on the board. I feel myself there. There are um, streets in New York where I feel myself. I'm at LDF, which is a New York uh, based organization, it is, yeah. and where I spent my first five years as a lawyer, mm-hmm. I feel myself there. But in a- every instance, my imagination was working overtime about where I wanted to be next, about what I wanted to be doing, about where I wanted to travel, about what I wanted for my kids, about what kind of cases I wanted to bring next, about what I wanted to write. I'm not saying this like it was a good thing. I think it was a uh, coping mechanism, um, but one I've never fully freed myself of. Um, and that's why I never, I, I never, uh, hunger for like, what should I do? You know, I'm not, that's just not me. I, I have, um, I have a file of, <laughs> you know, um, uh, imaginative dreams of, of what I could do and, mm. and should do and must do and where I must go and, um, what I want to seed into other people, um, whether it's young lawyers or my children or my family members, um, so I don't know where you'd find me. I hope you'd find me in them, in in the other people that I, you know, spend so much time thinking about and the and the um, work I've tried to accomplish, which I spend an incredible amount of time thinking about as well, and always have. Um, so you know, you could you could you could catch a brief whiff <laughs> by going to all these places, but the truth is, I'm hoping it shows up where you can't see it. I'm hoping that I've integrated my work and my influence so deeply that things have just shifted in ways that, that others, you know, 20 years from now experience as just something, as just air, as just the way it is, you know, um, that's my hope. Nothing monumental, no statue, just, um, you know, making change in the lives of real people that produces something different and better. That's beautiful. Let's let it lie there. Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you so much for bringing me to your hometown. Thank you, Kevin. This was great. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, visit our website at yourhometown.org, 
where you can listen to all our past episodes and find show notes and artwork for each guest. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app. And when you're there, take a minute to fill out a survey and let us know how we're doing. Please also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Also, when you get a chance, check out our show's New York City series page, including information on live events at the Museum of the City of New York's website, mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now, let me thank the incredible team that works with me each week on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, Robert Krolwich, our art director, Nick Gregg, editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, our composer and performer, Sterling Steffen, and our researcher, Shaquille Khan. Our branding and website design is by Tama Creative, and Kayla Hale-Stern does an amazing job managing our social media. A special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. I also want to deeply, deeply thank the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and our other financial supporters for their deep belief in this series and our mission. Until next time, thank you so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.